As you know, the scriptures in the church are very important. And there's a quote here. The Holy Spirit may be received by reading and listening to Holy Scripture as the true word of God. Holy Scripture is a great treasury from which we can draw light and life, light to enlighten and inform every man and life to quicken, comfort, and delight everyone. Holy Scripture is one of the greatest of God's blessings to man, and it is a blessing which can be enjoyed and used by anyone who wishes to do so. And that's St. Innocent of Alaska. I didn't know that today was his day, so turns out to be nice coincidence. Okay, so, and feel free, if you have some questions, just put up your hand. I'd like this to be a little bit more informal because I don't know what everybody's background is. So if there's something you, you're curious about, and this is a four-part series. We may not cover everything. We probably won't cover everything, but your questions are important. So the scriptures are quoted in the New Testament. Unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. That's in John 10, verse 35. In Mark 12, 10, Christ said, Have you not read the scripture? He expected people to read the scriptures. And Luke 24, verse 25, And he said to them, O fools, he didn't mince words, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is what we read at Orthros. This is the on the road to Emmaus. He, he talked to the two about the scriptures. And this is, all these quotes are from Christ. Now, the scriptures, who knows which scriptures there were at the time of Christ? The Old Testament, that's it. There were no gospels, there were no epistles. There were only the Old Testament, and the early church only had the Old Testament to rely on. And what, what did Christ use to quote against Satan in his temptation? Anybody know? It was from the Old Testament, because that's the only thing that was around. But anybody know what book? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. So... When the apostles spoke of the scriptures, anytime you read them and they speak of the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was very powerful background to everything that developed in the church. And there are two major parts to the Bible, as we know, the Old and the New Testament. And the Gospels are in the New Testament, but they didn't exist at the time that the apostles... So it's kind of funny to think because... Sometimes we grew up thinking people walked to church with their Bibles, but they didn't have the Gospels. They only had the Old Testament, and in those days, the Old Testament was written on scrolls. And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake to you while I was yet with you, that all must be fulfilled, which was written in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Psalms. And so Christ here is outlining the three parts that existed in the Old Testament. I'm giving all of this as a background to the Gospels because the Gospels have the Old Testament in mind when they talk about what, all the things that they talk about. And the Old Testament had three parts to it. And uh, this is what Christ is referring to in the book of Luke. So if we go into the Gospels now, we, we're in the New Testament, and these Gospels... The earliest Gospels were written how many years after Christ? Anybody know? Approximately. 
about 30 years after Christ. So that's the earliest ones. The book of John was written much later, about 90 AD. But the earliest ones were written. So they were, you know, there were still eyewitnesses around. There are people. But to fully understand the Gospels and the New Testament, we have to understand a lot of things that help our background. We, we should understand the history, a little bit the geography, the language, the culture, the economic conditions. And we can't really understand, especially the New Testament, without understanding much about the Old Testament. So it really helps to have a background in the Old Testament. The Bible is a very deep book, and the more you understand it, the more you benefit from it and, and are able to grow. The Gospels constantly make reference to the Old Testament. It's throughout. So, and, you, and we'll see this. So, you know, I kind of like to give a, an example. I, I always used to use the Chinese, but, you know, I, I think there are some Chinese people here, but I know Chinese people, so let's do something completely different. If Christ appeared in Papua New Guinea, and he started acting and talking with the mannerisms of Papua New Guinea, I think we would want to know everything about Papua New Guinea, right? Like, what do these people think? How do they speak? Why is Christ doing this thing, you know? Why is he talking to them in that way? So it's kind of that way. We really should try to find out everything about the society in which Christ appeared. Because he didn't walk around with a hat and, and earphones, you know, and, and listening to music. He walked with a, uh, he didn't have pants, he had a robe, and he addressed the people in the language and mannerisms in which, in which they, they, they understood. And so let's try to understand a little bit about their purpose and their mannerisms and their way of being. So there's a quote in Galatians, it says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman under the law. And that's a very important quote because there are two things there. Number one is the fullness of time. Things had to come piece, piece together in world history to come about to that point where Christ was born. And then he had to be born under the law, the law that was given to Israel. He had to be born as an Israelite and specifically as a Jew. And so the fullness of time, we'll talk about that. What is the fullness of time? Just the right conditions has to be set about. And there's a whole bunch of things, you know, we won't have time to go through them today, a whole bunch of historical conditions that were set up just before Christ came to enable the gospel to go to the Jews and then to the whole world, as Father mentioned today. So he also says, when the fullness of time came, it was to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. The people under the law were the Israelites, the people that received the law in Mount Sinai. So we have to understand, and I'll just briefly cover some of this because it gives a little bit of background from the Old Testament. I can't possibly cover the Old Testament in all of this, but I'll just give you kind of a, a bird's eye view. So in the Old Testament, there's Abraham. And Abraham is the first individual that's called out by God for a specific purpose to become the progenitor of an entire race that is going to be God's people. And Abraham is kind of the Mary in the Old Testament. Before there was Mary, everybody knew Abraham. So if you remember, in the New Testament, it talks about being in the bosom of Abraham when you go to heaven. 
You know, today we, we might say, I'm looking forward to being with the Theotokos. In those days, they said to be in the bosom of Abraham. So Abraham was kind of the progenitor of the race, the progenitor of the spiritual race, as we will find out. And Abraham gave birth to Isaac, and then to ja- and Isaac gave birth to Jacob. And out of them came the people of Israel, who went down to Egypt, where became slaves in Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt through great signs and wonders, and then gave them the law. This is very important because the law was given. Where was the law given? On Mount Sinai. Okay, today we have a monastery on Mount Sinai, but the law was given on Mount Sinai. But why did God give the law to the people? Why, why would he give a law? They needed boundaries. They needed to know what was the basics of what God was operating in, right? But later we'll find out that the law is not sufficient. But the law that he gave them were boundaries. So just like... Patrick? Oh. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. So he gave them the law. Now, if you look at all the Gentile nations around Israel, like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Assyria didn't exist at that time, but other nations, they had some form of law, but not like the kind of spiritual law that God gave Israel. And that spiritual law was very important. And throughout the history of Israel, God is constantly instructing them to follow this law and to obey this law. And this law had the initial principles of how to behave like a a spiritual human being, but only the very basics. One of the things that it had, for example, was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So an eye for... We don't do that today, right? In in, uh, the... The movie, Fiddler on the Roof, he says, if we obeyed that, we'll all be blind and toothless. So, but he gave it to them. Why did he give it to them? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was an improvement on the past. The past was, if you took out my eye, I brought my whole family and we destroyed you, right? So it was at least God was bringing them up to a higher view of life, higher proportionality. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament, where the sister of the 12 tribes of Israel gets raped, and they go and destroy an entire town for that. Okay, that's not, dispro- that's not proportional justice. So God was bringing them up to proportional justice, at least to begin to understand the law of God. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the law. And then out of that emerge the kings of Israel. And God works in that to bring about the prophecy of what is going to happen in the Gospels. So the Old Testament is a wonderful series of prophecies about God's intention and what's going to come to pass when Christ arrives on the scene. But you have to read the scriptures with a spiritual eye, just like you do today. And many people did not read the scriptures with a spiritual eye. And so the kings of Israel were established when they went and lived in the Holy Land. And they built a temple. Solomon built a temple, which was the first temple. 
and they had animal sacrifices in that temple. All of this is setting up what's going to be seen in the Gospels. And they had animal sacrifices, and they had a system of priests. But these priests administered animal sacrifices. There was no yet Jesus Christ, because the whole world in those days was doing animal sacrifices. So this is what they understood, and this is what God established even in Israel. But the whole story of Israel is to get them to obey even this basic law, even an eye for an eye, take care of the poor, you know, uh, don't let your uh, ox roam freely and gore people. Really basic stuff that we would think today, you know, do this, this need to be said. You know, it's sort of like if I told you, look, when you go to your friend's house, don't steal the silverware, right? <laughs> so you say, well, why are you telling me this? That's kind of ridiculous. That's the kind of thing that God had to tell them. Really basic stuff, okay? So, but even with that basic stuff, their tendency was always to go back to the old-time religion. What was the old-time religion for them? They lived in Egypt for 400 years. It was paganism. It was a golden calf. So when Moses goes up to the mountain, they say, Oh, you know, Moses is gone. Let's build a golden calf and worship that. So that's what their tendency was. And God always had to fight with them to obey this basic law. Always come back. There's only one God. You have to keep the law. And, and you know, they get punished. And it's the story of hard-headedness, just like some of our kids, but also like some of us. <laughs> so anyway, so what happens is this law is finally, you know, they finally start getting the message. And when do they get the message? When God finally sends them into exile. And, and in exile, they kind of remember. They had various writings from God. They had the prophets. And in exile, there's a psalm. You know, I'm sitting by the rivers of Babylon. And how can I sing the Lord's song about Jerusalem in the, in the, by the rivers of Babylon? That's one of the psalms. And it's a terrible thing because now they're in exile. They're away from their land. And they remember, you know, we should have kept the law of God. We should have kept the law of God. So when they come back, now we're getting closer to the Gospels. When they come back to the Holy Land, all of a sudden, there's this appreciation for the law. And they say, you know, there's one God. And, and by the time Christianity and the Gospels come along, at least one idea they understand in Israel is there's only one God. No more paganism. So when you read the Gospels, you won't find that the Jews have any pagan tendencies. It's only people that are Gentiles that, that have pagan tendencies, worship idols, worship other gods. But by the time you get to the New Testament and the Gospels, they finally learn that there's only one God. Okay? So Christianity starts on that basis that there's only one God. That's quite a fight over 800 years for God to instantiate that idea in their mind that there's only one God and that the law is important. At least minimally keep the law. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a background. Now going back to Abraham, this is how it started with Abraham. The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will make your name great. This is about 2000 BC that God said this. And Abraham departed. He departed to that land of Israel. Now Abraham settles in the land, as I mentioned, and they have that whole history. And so when we get to the Gospels, the first thing that the Gospels want to show us is that when Christ comes along, he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we read this genealogy in one of our Sundays. Uh, I forget which Sunday. Uh, I think it's going to come up in December. In December, the, the day before, the, the week before. Is it the week before Christmas? Sunday before Christmas. And we read this genealogy. And this, actually, Matthew is giving us this genealogy starting from Abraham all the way down to uh, Mary that Christ came from that lineage and they preserved all of the names and Christ came from that lineage. And it's very important because from Abraham's lineage, God promised that a special deliverer would come. And even Moses prophesied about that deliverer. He said a deliverer just like me would come along. And just like me meant he delivered the people out of Egypt and delivered them into the promised land so what would be a prophet just like him? The, the difference would be that this deliverer would deliver them spiritually out of a spiritual Egypt into the spiritual wilderness, into the spiritual promised land. So that's what Christ was, and he had to come in the lineage of Abraham. And what's interesting here is there's a few women mentioned. Because in those days, I'll just mention this briefly, the role of women in the, in the gospel times, even by the time the gospels, the women were not considered spiritually equal. They weren't considered, their word, their testimony wasn't considered as valuable as men's. And Christ would come along and change that view. Because he would, he would point out, as, the, as we read in the, uh, as we read in Orthros, the resurrected Christ appeared first to women. Because he wanted to change the point of view and he wanted to point out that women are spiritually equal to men. Not necessarily socially equal, but spiritually equal. And that was very important in the New Testament message. So we see the genealogy, when it starts, it starts by pointing out the genealogy through the lineage of men. Nevertheless, you find that there are specific women that are mentioned that have specific acts of bravery. Tamar, and the story of Tamar, uh, I, I won't go through it here. Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute, and she recognized Israel as the one that God was working with. And then uh, Bathsheba, who's not mentioned by name, but uh, she was the wife of Uriah, who David took. So special women are mentioned. But you have to think about that in the context. We come to the Gospels, and Mary... Is revealed, to Mary is revealed the Messiah, and to Mary comes the angel. So think about that. Her status as a woman was pretty low. And yet God sent an angel, the highest of angels, the archangel, to her to make an announcement. And this is the context in which it comes. Christ is, and God is revealing that things are about to change. About to change for the people of Israel and about to change for the status of women and the status of the people. Now, Christ had to come as a son of David. 
Because why? We talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the kings of Israel. And the, one of the major kings of Israel who wrote many of the Psalms it was King David. And it was prophesied that the Messiah would come in his lineage. And so it was very important. So in the Gospels, you'll read, O oh, son of David, you know, save me. Son of David was a term that they recognized that this was the Messiah, the descendant of King David. Uh, and, and, and we read the genealogies that indeed Christ came from King David. And it was very important because the story of the Old Testament is God always begins with a small seed, as he does with the church. He begins with a little seed. Abraham is one man among many, many men. And God calls him out. There were many more important men. There were many more important civilizations. And God leads him into a backwater area called Canaan, which later became the land of Israel. It really was a small piece of land. It wasn't very important except as a passageway for various kingdoms. The kingdom of Egypt was far more important with its pyramids, its pharaohs. Other kingdoms were far more powerful. And yet God begins with one man and works through that man to bring salvation to the entire human race. First physical salvation and then spiritual salvation. And so, and so it was very important that Christ come as the son of David because of the fact of the lineage. God worked through Abraham and worked outwards to the world. But also because God had promised that the kings would come out of David and eventually the greatest king is Christ and the greatest prophet is Christ and the greatest deliverer is Christ. So all of that had to fit into the picture. And in those days, all of the Jews were anticipating this. They didn't know exactly in what form it would come. But we'll talk about this. They thought especially it would come in a political form that a great deliverer, a king would come and deliver them in a fantastic physical way and give them freedom. That's what they were looking for. But they didn't realize that the ways of God are spiritual and hidden. And this was the kind of disconnect that we'll read in the Gospels. So when Christ comes, we read of a temple. First of all, in Luke 1.5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he was a priest, and out of this priesthood, we say, well, what are these priests? These are now people, the Israelites, that have come back to the land of Israel. Remember, they were exiled. They came back in a small number, and they reestablished the temple. And this King Herod, who we'll talk about, built out the temple to a great magnificence. And we'll talk about that. So the first temple was built in about 1000 BC. And it was destroyed in 586 BC because of the disobedience of the people. The Babylonians destroyed it and took away the people to captivity. Then they came back. We'll talk about King Herod, but he started rebuilding the magnificent second temple in about 20 BC. Now, when we read about Elizabeth and, and, um, and Zacharias, we read that they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. 
So, so what I mentioned is that the second temple was built in its magnificence by Herod. So when they came back, they kind of rebuilt a destroyed temple. They put some stones together. They had sacrifices, and that's what lasted them. It wasn't in very good shape. But Herod said, I'm going to redo this thing. And so, but it's the same temple, and it's considered the second temple. In a technical way, you could consider it almost a third temple. But there was no break between this, the time that they came back and this and Herod's temple. Uh, Herod's temple, the second temple. It's called the second temple. And, and we'll see a, a little bit about it. So the priestly order that Zechariah was serving in was actually set up by King David. And King David set up 24 orders. And one of the orders was called Abijah. And this is what Zechariah is in. So they take turns going through and being the priest who does most of the uh, sacrifices and who does most of the singing and so on. And the priests were descendants of the tribe of Levi. And, and because this was a priest, he had to marry uh, a Levite. And, uh, and Elizabeth was a Levite. But interestingly enough, she was a cousin to Mary, who was not a Levite, who was, um, who was from Judah. Because remember, Christ is descendant from Judah, from the other tribe. Jews are, from, are called Jews because they're the tribe of Judah. So you can, you can have somebody, cousins, sharing brother and sister as, as father and mother, and then you'll have somebody else on the father's side that's Judah, and somebody else on the other father's side that's Aaron. So anyway, it's a little bit complicated, but uh, through some of their parents, they were from two different tribes. Now the priests were important. For example, we read in Luke 5.12, uh, Christ heals somebody that has leprosy. And uh, this man f uh, fell on his face. He asked, God, he asked Christ to heal him. And, and Christ puts forth his hand, touches him and says, I will that you be clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And, he ch and Christ charged him, tell no man, but show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing according as Moses commanded. So Christ backed up the system that they had, the system of priesthood and the sacrificial system. And what would he offer as, as an offering? He would offer an animal sacrifice. So this was in place even when the Christians were there and even when Christ began, there was an animal sacrificial system. And it wasn't the nicest system. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would smell that the you know animals being killed and you'd smell the blood and the burnt flesh and all of that so it wasn't a very pleasant system now the jews having come back to the land were very careful about keeping the faith keeping the law the law was very important why because they've been exiled for not keeping the law so they were burnt and they said no now we really believe that there's one god and we're going to keep the faith and we're going to keep the law. But what happens when you want to be so meticulous about the law? What happens? You become legalist. You become a legalist. And that was the danger. That's dangers at all times. It's dangerous for us today. And it was a danger for them. But as you read, Zechariah and Elizabeth kept the law. And that was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing to keep the law. It was a good thing because the law had wonderful principles in it.
It had principles of taking care of the poor, principles of taking care of your household, your fields, your animals. The law was a wonderful thing. It wasn't a bad thing. But it was only an outline, a skeleton of what God really wanted. And so he gave them that law, and it was a good thing. But the tendency was, oh, we need to be really careful about this law. And so they became very careful. And so some started to put a fence around the law. Anybody heard about a fence around the law? Okay, so a fence is things that you do so you don't violate the law. So you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Okay, that's what God said in the Old Testament. But what was the purpose of that? The purpose of it was to have a day of rest so that they could concentrate on God, keep themselves holy for that day of rest. Today as Christians, we say every day is holy, right? But at least for them, God said the Sabbath you have to keep holy. You have to be holy on the Sabbath. And you have a day of rest to concentrate on God. Well, they said, okay, you can't work on the Sabbath. How do we define that? Um, So they didn't think often spiritually. So they said, okay, you can only walk so many meters on the Sabbath. That was called the Sabbath's day journey. It was about from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. About, I think it's an eighth of a mile, something like that. So they said, you can't walk more than that. Otherwise, you're starting to work. See how we're starting to get legalistic? Okay, so the point of it was not for God to say you can't work at that level of detail. The point was focus on God. But, you know, people get legalistic. Another legalistic thing that they... If you go to Israel, you'll see several legalistic things that people still do. For example, on the Sabbath, the elevator, they say, well, you can't light a fire on the Sabbath. Electricity is just like a fire... So you can't touch electricity on the Sabbath. So the, what do you do when there's an elevator? So if you go to Israel, the elevator stops at every floor. So God forbid you have a 30-floor you know, hotel, you're going to stop at every floor. So that's what happens in Israel. And so you, you don't touch the button you know, on the Sabbath day. That's getting into legalism. And they had several things like that. Uh, and I'll talk about one more. <clears throat> so another name for this, this law that they had was called Torah. But we have to understand Torah, the word Torah means to show the way. God was showing them the way to a bigger picture. And I like to use the example of when you teach your kids when they're small, what do you tell them when they come to a red light? Stop, don't cross on a red light. But is that, is that what you're supposed to do? I think we have a fireman here, or at least people that have practiced to be firemen. If there's a fire across the street and there's a red light for two minutes and somebody's burning, you're going to say, well, hold on, I have to wait for the red light to change. <laughs> While somebody's screaming, you know. Well, that's not the law. The law isn't the red light. The law is safety, Right? So as an adult, you understand that. And if there's somebody screaming, you're going to say, hold on, hold on. You're going to try to stop the traffic. If there's no traffic, you're going to look both ways. You're going to save that person. But you can't teach that to a five-year-old kid. Five-year-old kid, you say, you come to a red light, you stop. That's it. That's the law. But is that your intention? That's not your intention. Your intention is much bigger. 
It's the same thing with Torah. Torah and the law, the intention was much bigger. But people often confuse the intention of God versus the details. So if you look at the law, the law is not like the Roman law. Today we end up with Roman law. Roman law is like, okay, no trespassing sign. You trespass and I shoot you, you know, or I take you to court. That's the way we operate in our, in our society. We take people to court. Every little violation, you know, we sue people and we get upset. Well, the law was supposed to be more holistic than that. It was supposed to be, okay, you know, maybe I should, we should talk this out. Maybe we should do something about this. If there was a dispute, you go to the judges and, and talk things over. So, so the, the law was supposed to be more holistic than that, but it often became a little bit closed system. Okay, so a faithful Jew was actually a good thing in Israel, and that's what Zacharias and Elizabeth and several other people were in the New Testament. So, so you have to separate what a modern Jew would say versus what they said 2,000 years ago. So modern Jews come a long ways and has been influenced by Christianity and has spiritualized away a lot of Judaism. But if you go back to the Old Testament, they actually did stone people. In fact, there was a woman caught in adultery that was going to be stoned in the New Testament. And also, Joseph hid Mary because he didn't want her to suffer that kind of penalty. If people found out, they would either try to find the person who, you know, uh, got her pregnant, or they would, they might even stone her. So he hid her away because, but you're right in one sense, that there were exceptions. For example, King David committed adultery. He was held accountable for it, but God never allowed him to be stoned because he repented. So there were hints in the Old Testament of a deeper sense of the law. But it wasn't fully revealed like it was at the time of Christ. And some things were implemented in a very rigorous way. And you find that in various places in the Old Testament because sometimes people's mind is very hard and they only understand hard language. And God implemented that. But sometimes he tried to point out to them that my intention is softer. And I want you to understand that it's about love. Right. 
Because one is lack of repentance and one is with repentance. And those are two different things. Yeah, so they didn't have that level of legalism. So, for example, uh, my dad, who was in the Israeli army, had to rescue a woman in Jerusalem because she went into that religious neighborhood with short sleeves, and they picked up stones and started to throw it at her because she came in with short sleeves. So it's become kind of extreme in some neighborhoods in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, Leah and I were driving around, and we ended up in the wrong part of Jerusalem, driving a car on the Sabbath, and people started to uh, get very angry and started to look around for things to throw at us. So we got, we got out of there very quickly. Uh, but, but they don't have, they've done a few extra things since that time that you'll find today that they didn't do. They wouldn't have put a wire around it as far as I know. They wouldn't have put a wire. Because today the Jews are isolated. They're surrounded by Gentiles in their own city, in a city that's not their own. In those days, they were in Judea. So they had to keep separate from the Gentiles, but there had a lot of Jews. So they, they didn't have to put this wire around them. Oh, three minutes. Okay. Three minutes. Thank you. So I just want to point out that from the New Testament and the Gospel's point of view, keeping the law was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. Getting legalistic was a bad thing. And, and we'll talk about how Christ views the legalism and how some of them kept those things. But here are the people that kept the law and were good. Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke 6, 1, 6, they were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments. Joseph and Mary, Luke 2, 2 and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcised, so they circumcised Jesus. And then she fulfilled her days of purification according to the laws of Moses. And that was considered good. And um, they went to the feast every year for Passover. That was a good thing. Simeon was a righteous man. He was, um, he was just and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. So he was keeping the law. Anna was uh, a good person. And she was praying in the temple and serving God with fasting and prayer. So... Sometimes people think of the law as a bad thing, and it was actually a good thing. It helped people to draw close to God, to understand their boundaries, and if they were wise, they would understand to what the law was pointing. And we'll find one person who Christ talked to that really saw where the law was going. And it's very interesting to see Christ's interaction with that person, because Christ perceives that this man understands things where a lot of people didn't. And... Uh, and so I'll stop here, but there's another example in the New Testament. St. Paul gets, uh, sometimes the Jews don't like his message, and he gets 40 lashes minus one. Anybody knows why St. Paul gets 40 lashes minus one? No, it wasn't a death penalty, but it was severe lashing. And in the Old Testament, it says that if somebody was very badly misbehaving, 
they would get 40 lashes. Why the minus one? Because the Old Testament says you can give him 40 lashes. Why the minus one? <laughs> There's our legalist right here. <laughs> no, it was minus one just in case you made a mistake in counting. If you made a mistake and you know you count 31, 32, and then your kid comes up and oh, 30, 31, 32 again, you know. And so, so it was made to make sure you wouldn't make a mistake in counting. So it was 39, just, just in case you missed that one, okay? So that's, that's where we get the 30 lashes minus one. So we see that kind of legalism. Instead of thinking, well, should this man be lashed? You know, is St. Paul really that kind of a bad person that we should give him 40 lashes? We don't care about that. We're going to give him 30 lashes minus one to make sure that we don't violate the 40, 40 lashes. Okay, so that kind of gives you an idea of the bad version of the law. So there's a good version of the law and there's a bad version of the law. And that, I'll leave you with that today. Yes? Oh, okay. Um, I was born in Israel. And I speak Hebrew, but over the years I've studied a lot the Old Testament and the New Testament and the history of it. And I know there are other people here that have as well. So that's my background. I can, I can read the Bible in Hebrew and somewhat in Greek. But anyway, that's my background. And, and I used to be in a Protestant church and uh, was a ministerial trainee for a while. <laughs> Okay, thank you, thank you.